1: Hello! Hello! And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name's Mia, and I'm an assistant producer here at the IAI.
2: And my name's Charlie, and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI.
1: So today we've got In Conversation with Ian McGilchrist and Hilary Lawson, featuring Ian McGilchrist, an Oxford scholar and polymath whose clarity, lucidity, and almost hypnotically compelling style has seen him rise to prominence as a worldwide lecturer and public intellectual. He'll be in conversation with Hilary Lawson, who's the founder of the IAI and a post-realist, philosopher. This took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Charlie, tell us a bit about this conversation.
2: So this is a personal interview, one of our first actually in the style between Ian McGilchrist and Hilary Lawson, where they discuss philosophy, the cosmos and the danger of delusional thinking from the left brain. And it's quite interesting because they've got fairly similar views when it comes to anti-realism or post-realism, thinking that reality is not just something that presents itself to us. And also um, Ian McGilchrist's left brain and right brain hypothesis is somewhat similar to Hillary's idea of closure
1: sounds like a very interesting conversation. So remember, before you dive in, if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
2: Now, it's time to welcome Ian McGilchrist to Philosophy for Our Times.
0: Good to talk to you, Ian. Uh, you've uh, had many celebrated roles in, you, in your life, uh, initially as a uh, English literature academic, then as a psychiatrist, researcher in neuroscience, more recently you're best known for your books, and, and, and as a philosopher really. And I wondered which of these uh, very different roles is closest to your heart, and w- which has given you most satisfaction? So, of course, philosophy never has
3: an ultimate answer, but it doesn't make the, the, the quest pointless. And, and I've enjoyed it enormously. What I've been able to do, I think, is to bring a philosophical mind to bear on neuroscience in a way which I hope is productive and creative. But. Um, Yes. I got into the literary studies by accident, actually. What happened was that um, I wanted to go to Oxford, and you had to sit and examine a school subject, but philosophy wasn't one of them. So um, I sat it in English, and I went for an um, interview, and they said, what do you want to read? And I said, philosophy and theology, partly because... PPE, which as you know is philosophy, politics, and economics, didn't particularly grab me because that's the aspect of philosophy I'm not really interested in, whereas a kind of philosophy that at least has room for theology in it and a kind of theology that has an interest in philosophy seemed perfect, but it wasn't an honours degree, and so my my interviewer said you can't do a non-honours degree, you've got to come and do an honours degree, so why don't you just do English, you're clearly kind of interested in it and okay. So I ended up doing
0: that. Right, that's all, all very fascinating. I, mean, I I did PPE myself and right. then became a philosopher. So, you know, that's that, that, so, yeah. <laughs> interesting, that, yes, that, that, yes. that parallel. So I was going to ask you, but I think in a way you've answered that. Uh, the question is whether the neuroscience and uh, your researches there, the science, had led to your philosophy, or whether philosophy has led to the science or influence, but I think you've answered that and say actually it was your philosophical approach which has driven your neuroscience work. You're right in
3: that in my twenties I wrote a, a, a sort of philosophical book about the way in which we approach works of art called Against Criticism. And um, what I felt I was trying to explain was something to do with the mind body problem. That we took these embodied beings, works of art, and turned them into disembodied abstractions. And that this was running in the opposite direction to the way the work of art itself led you and in doing so they lost all their implicit meaning and they lost their uniqueness it all became explicit and dull like explaining a joke so i thought there's something wrong here and uh, I, you know for all the mind body philosophy seminars i went to nobody really approached the thing in a properly embodied way and i thought the only way to do this is to become a doctor and actually see what happens to real people when something goes wrong with their brain, and it affects their whole sense of being, or something happens in their psychological world, and it affects their body. And that, that's what
0: I did, so I, I became a doctor. And uh, you, you obviously, in your, in your you've had two major, major works. Uh, your first uh, Master and His Emerus put forward a completely new, account of the brain, and more recently, Matter of Things, of course, uh, explores the nature of reality, consciousness, uh, and the divine, and um, I I wonder whether, uh, in the light especially of what you have just said, whether you really see yourself as a religious thinker. A
3: difficult one, in an apophatic way, I would say I don't see myself as a non-religious thinker. (laughs) In other words, I don't, I'm not one of these people who has no time for, no interest in and no room for whatever it is that people have timelessly explored, which is this sense of something that goes beyond the immediate and the the rationally explicable. And... um, it's interesting because a lot of philosophical colleagues said, don't don't include a chapter on the sacred in your book, because everyone will go, oh, no, he's a faith head. You don't listen to him. And I've been waiting for flack from atheistic people. I haven't got any at all. The only flack I've got has been from rather down the, the middle Christians who've written to me saying, there's a sort of Christ-shaped hole in your account. Why do you not talk about it? And there are two reasons for that. One is that I wanted to be inclusive, not exclusive. I wanted... Any anyone who had any inklings of anything divine or sacred to be able to be welcomed in and not have this thing, we're Christians here, so you better sign up to eight impossible things before breakfast. Um, And and the other thing really is that um, I don't really myself feel entirely certain what I think about Christianity. What I can say is that it seems to me to have quite possibly the most um, rich mythos about the nature of the relationship between humans and the sacred that there is. Um, whether I believe certain things are literally the case seems to me almost
0: irrelevant. That's interesting. So uh, I think that maybe leads on to something I'd like to ask you about, which is, is uh, your understanding of truth. I think it's probably fair to say that you and I share a um, criticism of uh, reductionism mm-hmm. and uh, so forth, uh, and materialism mm. in, in science. But we both see how important science is and yeah. see that you want to pursue it. But maybe there's an area where we have a, a rather different approach, which would be in that... I think that while you are often wishing to point to the... Uh, our inability to actually access truth... I feel quite a lot of the time you're wanting to say there is a truth, and that we should try and, and get to it. Is that fair? Um, I think there's a
3: distinction to be made between something that's just out there and we need to go as fast as we can and get it, mm. and something that is always going to be a matter of greater or lesser approximation. So I don't hold that there is a truth that somebody one day will hold and say this is the truth, but I believe that we should be and are compelled, drawn by our our minds, our imagination, our intellect towards wondering which of these various things that people believe is
0: truer than the others. Mm. Uh, And uh, do you think then there's uh, any tension between, on the one hand, pointing in a way to our inability to access truth and at the same time trying to be telling people uh, what you think think the truth is, or well, there would be if I thought that I was telling
3: people what the absolute truth is, but uh, I think i 'd like to distinguish between certain areas of life, so for example, in science, um, I believe that there are certain findings let 's take it no further than that. there are findings that are very hard to contest. in other words, a review of an enormous number of subjects seems to show that this is truer than that. And, and that's fine, um, and, and that's the kind of truth that in part one of my new book, The Matter With Things, which is devoted to neurology and, and, and neuropsychology, is, is to show that certain things about the brain are assertable. Up to a point. I mean, science is always an approximate thing. Um, One way of looking at science is it's the perpetual history of mistaken beliefs, because of course they're always replaced in time. But it's nonetheless there is grounds for saying that when you come to you know what is the nature of the cosmos and and so on, we're in an area where certainties are fewer and and empirical tests are rarer. So what we're really talking about is a way of looking at the world, at the cosmos, at a human life, that makes more sense than any of the other alternatives.
0: So it's interesting where you put it, makes more sense, Um, avoiding somehow saying that it's uncovered what what is the case? No, I think it has
3: uncovered but this is always a process one that is never completed so it's perfectly respectable to be a seeker after truth I think it's rather disreputable to say I have found the truth and and of course the fact that we can't be certain doesn't mean that everything's up for grabs and that um, in a postmodern way anything that you want to say is true I don't believe that Uh, I think that's uh, I was going to call My new book, um, um, Not the Matter with Things, but There Are No Things. And somebody pointed out to me that that might align me with a certain postmodern school, which basically says that whatever it is that we think is something we just make up ourselves. I, I don't believe that. I also don't believe in a kind of naive realism that there's just stuff out there in some way that a lot of scientists seem to believe, and it's just our job, like. Geiger counters, photographic plates or whatever to pick up the data.
0: And one of the puzzles there, isn't it, is that if you don't buy the naive realism story about the world, you are in this sort of interregnum type space of wanting to say things, but at the same time having a caveat that this shouldn't be taken as definitive. In in some yes. way, and do you think that we're, when when we is doing that, saying uh, you know take it like this, but this isn't definitive, that 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 itself is, a, is a, like a, a new form of definitiveness. I think yeah. that as a philosopher,
3: um, you're not going to say, but I don't really believe this, because in that case, why did you just bore us with saying it? Why don't you say what you do believe? So we all say what we believe to be the case, but belief is inherently approximate. We are fallible
0: beings. Our experience is not universal. But Is that claim? Belief is inherently approximate, that sounds like. A definitive account. The belief is inherently proximal. Well, there there is a word game like this, which
3: goes: um, the only thing that's um, certain is that those who believe that there's anything certain are wrong, and and that that would be the the succinct way of putting what you're pointing to. And to an extent, that there are paradoxes, like this sentence is untrue. Um, You you um, you have to accept that. But I think that you and I probably know that there's quite a difference between a certain kind of dogmatic kind of philosophy in which one thinks simply this is you know advancing the sum of whatever it is we know in in a reliable and a way that is never going to be revised or repeated, and a view that whatever it is that we understand is to some extent provisional, but that we don't have the choice in this life to be completely certain. We only have the choice to do what seems to us
0: better. So in your account of the brain, you have essentially a notion of two uh, different ways of attention, left brain attention, right brain attention. Do you see your own theory as a product of your left and right brain? I certainly do, Um, and I don't think that
3: I'd be better off or anyone would be better off if they had a left hemispherectomy. Um, It has its role. My only problem is that it tends, because it knows literally less than the right hemisphere, that it thinks it knows everything, and um, that's dangerous because it rules out a whole other way of seeing the world or understanding the world, which is more subtle, harder to articulate, but I think more important and foundational. So I'm I'm quite happy to make judgments and say this is better than that, but that doesn't entail me in being somehow mistaken because I've I've made a certainty out of anything, I don't think.
0: Mm. Uh, And do you think, therefore, the risks that you point to in the way that left brain goes about things... Do you think that you are at the same risk? You know, is there, and how do you deal with that internally for yourself? You know, is there a bit of you, it's a bit of Ian, that says, actually, I need to be a bit careful about that no, left brain no, stuff?
3: No, no, uh, 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 that's not how it works. Uh, so I imagine you, you, you would uh, believe anyway. Uh, 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 no, what it is is that i suppose over a lifetime of pondering on on many philosophical questions i've seen that there are discrepancies between different points of view and people have said well this school thought this and this school thought that and you know, take your pick but i've always felt that um, there were unarticulated truths that were unarticulated partly because they're very difficult to put into language but are nonetheless important for that and so I uh, learned early on to be attentive to implicit meaning, to um, the idea that there weren't these hard and fast certainties. And in doing that, I think my, or or maybe I I don't like to put a chain of causation here in in something which is probably circular in nature, that that something arose in me which was a point of view towards the world, which was that of the right hemisphere. And uh, it's not that I disrespect the left hemisphere. I only disrespect it when it comes to me and claims that it's the master and knows everything, because it doesn't
0: so um you were just saying uh, in that that um you didn't see yourself as needing a, a left brainectomy as it were and uh, i i guess the the reason why you felt you want to say that is because it is of course the case that um uh, sometimes you, you give the impression that, you know, the left brain is the baddie, you know, yes. and do, do, you, do, do you think that's how it is? I mean, do we, should we be suspicious of the right brain as well, as it were? Is, it, is there something about the right brain that makes it actually less threatening than the left brain? It, 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 it behoves us
3: to be skeptical, skeptical. always, but yeah, not skeptical, skeptical to the point of paralysis. We should be skeptical of our own skepticism as well. But... Um, Effectively, yes, the left brain is not in any sense a baddie until it's, and this is the crucial point, until it decides that it knows it all and it, it can run the show. And it's so deficient in knowledge compared with the right hemisphere. I mean, a sound bite I often use, but can easily defend and have done at great length, is that the left hemisphere helps us apprehend the world, i.e. grasp onto the world and get it. But the right hemisphere helps us comprehend the world, which means holding it together. And that is a quite different faculty. And in part one of the matter with things, which is the neuropsychology, I work through nine possible or eight possible portals for knowledge information of the world to come in and I show that in all but one of these the right hemisphere is demonstrably more reliable Um, and so in that sense we need to be more worried about what the left hemisphere is telling us, because without the contribution of the right hemisphere, it becomes frankly delusional. I'm not using that in some loose metaphorical way. It actually does become prey to delusions, hallucinations, and things that we would all accept are unreal. And I'm not the only person to have pointed this out by any manner of means. So. To that extent, it behoves us to be more suspicious of what we can see comes from the left hemisphere's attempt to, to tackle something than the right. But,
0: as I said at the outset, it behoves us always to be sceptical. Indeed. Well, look, uh, you know, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Delight having you here. Thank you very much. It's been
3: lovely being here and talking to you.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.